Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What's good, Internet? Welcome to another episode of Waypoint Article Reads. I am filling in today for Rob Zachney because Rob, it turns out, has written the article in question, and it would be really silly for him to throw to himself. So get ready to hear him read an article entitled MLB The Show 18 Dreams of an Escape from Politics and Damn, It's Tempting. And seriously, as the title suggests, even though it's an article about a baseball video game, stick this one out, even if you don't like sports. It's a great piece and a great read, and as always, we'll be having a conversation about it after the read is over, so stick around for that. All right, take it away, Rob. It made sense when I saw conservative commentator George Will's name at the end of the title sequence. Over some footage of groundskeepers tending the sacred diamond, dusting lines of white chalk over red-brown sand... A little boy recites homespun bromides about America's pastime. Baseball, it is said, is only a game. True, and the Grand Canyon is only a hole in Arizona, he says, before a montage of highlights from the last few seasons of baseball and golden hour morning in America shots of little kids warming up for Little League. It's a striking first impression. Where MLB The Show 2017 opened on a stirring, albeit cliched, journey through baseball history and collective memory leading to the end of a century-long baseball curse, the 2018 edition begins with a peon to childhood and escape. Yet the stakes involving that outside world are there, even as the show 18 conjures the fantasy of turning away from them. There are the Houston Astros winning the World Series three months after a hurricane inundated the city synonymous with the petroleum industry. There is Puerto Rico's Javier Baez making a tag at second while waving an admonishing finger, his home island a victim both of that same ghastly hurricane season and federal indifference. It's just an intro sequence, of course. But then again, it's often these extra touches that say the most about how a game is meant to be received, and by whom. They are meant both to evoke the spirit of the thing being simulated, and then also to justify the limits of the simulation. So where the 2017 edition of the game opened up with a trip through history, 2017 opens with an unsuccessful attempt to escape from it into the memory of an innocent childhood, in an ideal America, that has always been hypnotic to the kind of nostalgic newspaper columnists and bowtie conservatives whose words are placed in a child's mouth for that intro. Of course, when I turned off the show, I was greeted by news about school shooting survivors leading a nationwide march, and the growing rage directed at them from the political right. On opening day this week, Baez's Cubs teammate Anthony Rizzo knocked a home run out of right field against the Miami Marlins, and both teams were wearing MSD ribbons for Rizzo's high school alma mater, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. The diamond is in the world, not apart from it. Yet baseball does exist inside of a moat of rules and statistics that makes it feel as if it can offer a refuge from complexity and chance. And that is the circumscribed reality to which the show is so faithful. That faith and attention to minutiae and ritual are what make the show 18 a far more inspiring tribute to the game than any saccharine intro. While it may not be the ode to sabermetrics and trade construction that has made the the out-of-the-park series the definitive simulation of pro baseball, and if your primary interest lies in team building and franchise management, that's still where you should go, there are a few sports video games that capture the feel of playing their sport like the show, and that continues to be the case into the show 18. It is a game that effortlessly creates the kind of unexpected, revelatory moments that cause so many baseball fans to wax poetic about the sport. Sometimes they come out of nowhere. The other day I was leading the Cubs against the hated Brewers. I held a narrow lead at the top of the fifth inning with Jose Quintana on the mound, one man out and the tying run on first. Quintana was fading fast, but he'd run into trouble so quickly that I didn't have time to get his reliever warmed up. Quintana needed to survive just one more batter, Lorenzo Cain. Every pitcher has a repertoire of pitches, 
A pitcher feels less confident with their weaker pitches, and while that confidence fluctuates during a game depending on how things are going, in general they start trusting their weaker pitches less as they expend both mental and physical effort. You can still call for the sinker, but the empty confidence meter next to that pitch raises strong questions about whether you should. As Kane settled into the batter's box, Quintana felt good about exactly one pitch, his fastball, which he was too tired to throw. If I sent that slow-moving softball pitch across the zone, Kane could send it straight out of Miller Park. But trying to paint the corners of the strike zone with Quintana's uninspiring off-speed pitches resulted in two back-to-back balls. With Kane looking like he was going to get walked, I tossed a fastball high across the zone, which Kane let blow past him, and then a sinker that got him to go around with a swing and a miss. The count was even. I just needed one more strike, and Kane was gone. And that's when things started to get amazing. Both sides of the pitcher-batter interface are incredibly intense. From the batter's POV, a good curveball can disappear on you, dropping like a stone just as you start to swing for it. Or a fastball you weren't expecting is across the plate before you even have a chance to start tracking it. The feeling of laying off a pitch just outside the strike zone is in many ways more satisfying than getting a hit, because the former takes real discipline and judgment to let the pitch reveal itself to you, to not get baited by that long heartbeat where it seems to be headed straight across the plate. Meanwhile, the pitching side of the equation is about trying to get the batter to pull the trigger in situations where you're in the least danger. You pray for a swing on an off-speed pitch that won't be easy to hit well, or that they'll chase a tasty-looking fastball served just outside their reach. In retrospect, I could have just walked Kane and brought on the reliever. Or, after the five or six pitches that brought the count to three balls and two strikes, I could have brought out a new pitcher to finish the at-bat. But for some reason, I wanted Quintana to get this guy. I wanted to get this guy. So I started putting balls over the plate and daring Kane to swing at them. And he obliged, defending that strike zone like Thermopylae, sending one foul ball after another down the baselines. After ten pitches, I started to laugh, because now I was starting to have problems in addition to Quintana. It was getting too tense to hit the right timing on the pitch meter. I was taking longer breaks between pitches, trying to relax and find the right rhythm. If your pitcher is at full strength and confidence, the timing on the pitch meter is both more forgiving, and mistakes result in less severe deviations from the targeted area. If that pitcher's arm is about to fall off, and he's on the mound contemplating both his mortality and every bad pitch he's ever thrown, the timing is harder, and the inevitable miscues result in extremely unpredictable throws. It's how MLB The Show gets at both the physical and mental nature of the game, which is something a lot of sports games struggle to portray. One of my favorite baseball movies of all time, For Love of the Game, basically takes place inside a pitcher's head during a long game of baseball. He's playing what might be a meaningless game at the end of a great career that's dying with a whimper, and in between pitches and in between innings, he's just thinking about how the hell his life led to this point, and whether there's anything to look forward to after he hangs up his cleats. There's a lot of melodrama in the picture, but it's also the rare sports movie that really interrogates meaning. Most of the time, there is no big game, no championship, no ring, yet sometimes it still feels like the whole world collapses down to a single moment in a single game, for no good reason other than the feeling that this time matters more than all the others. A million rituals and repetitive actions suddenly stop being routine because, for whatever reason, they now have real stakes. Thirteen pitches. Kane was following everything. Every crap pitch Quintana heaved down the 60 feet to home plate, Kane managed to catch. Even bad ones that were going to end up between the catcher's ankles, Kane's bat would arc down like he was playing cricket and sweep that ball out of the dust and into foul territory. Boom! 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 Now the crowd and the PA system were into it. From the speakers came the sound of 40,000 people stamping their feet between pitches, their voices rising to a roar. I was nervous. None of this mattered, even in the context of my fictional Cubs season, but it mattered to me. 14 and 15, a good pitch and a bad one, both sent foul as this at-bat crept further outside the bounds of MLB probabilities. Only something like 30 or 40 at-bats each season go past 12 pitches, an absurdly low percentage when you think of all the thousands of games played and the tens of thousands of at-bats that take place. With every additional pitch, we were moving away from extremely rare to this basically never happens. I know this because later I looked up stats on the length of at-bats in Major League Baseball, wondering if this encounter was a sign that the show 18 was broken in some way. My partner was watching me from across the room. I can't tell if you're angry or enjoying yourself, she remarked, providing a lucid observation from the land known as reality where I'd lived until a few minutes earlier. 
I need to get this guy, I said. Ah, she said. Sports mode. Sports mode. It's that hypervigilant, delicious agony I feel when watching Chicago sports teams in the playoff games. It's that feeling of desperate hope that maybe we can win this and redeem all the bad years and bad memories. Weighed down by the knowledge that somehow, in some way, we, they, are going to fuck this up and lapse back into the complacent mediocrity that's defined all the years in the absence of Peyton or Urlacher, of Jordan and Pippen, of Taves and Keith, of Wood or Arietta. And here it was again, in my living room on a lazy Sunday afternoon. 16. A sickening crack of the bat as the ball blasted skywards down the left field baseline, headed for the stands, over the foul line. A home run avoided by just a few feet. 17. Fouled behind the plate. This single at-bat had become the equivalent of an inning, and now I was tired, a dull ache forming between my shoulders from tension and the ergonomic nightmare of a position I'd contorted myself into. My 18th and final pitch was basically a surrender. Quintana had nothing left in him except aiming the ball at the center of the strike zone and giving it everything he had. It drifted high into perfect home run territory as Kane tried to unload on the pitch and ended up hacking at it. The ball arced into the dirt between second and first, where Javier Baez rescued Quintana by trapping it against his chest and then sidearming it to first for the out. Quintana was hustled from the mound as a surprisingly robust and cheerful Joe Madden ushered him back to the dugout and signaled for the bullpen. So what did it matter? My Cubs lost four innings later by a single run after their closer, also me, gave up a double with a man on second. We won the next few games, but not a single one of those wins meant anything compared to the outcome of that stand by Quintana at the end of his outing. And really, it was all virtual teams and players anyway. This wasn't Wrigley Field or Miller Park. I was just hanging out in my house playing a video game, joyfully pouring all my attention and effort into it, and feeling like somehow, even if it didn't matter, it mattered a great deal. It's alluring to escape into that world. To be transported to a place where you can completely invest yourself, but still be safe, where there aren't really consequences outside of a passing feeling of triumph or the bittersweet feeling of loss. The show games let us do that perhaps better than just about any other sports game I've ever played, perhaps because the simplicity of baseball lends itself to convincing simulation in a way that football or soccer do not. With the exception of the often canned-sounding commentary, I found myself badly missing Harold Reynolds' conversational natural delivery, and the unnaturally lush colors, MLB The Show 18 looks, sounds, and plays like you're both watching the game at home and taking part in it from the field. But in its way, even the show 18 doesn't really think you can break the world into discrete chunks. If you play the road to the show mode, where you've got a single player from minor league obscurity to baseball glory, you'll find that the skill progression system has been overhauled. No longer do you earn buckets of skill points that you can freely spend on different playing attributes, crafting an improbably multi-talented avatar. Instead, you have to pick an archetype that caps what is achievable across your different attributes. If you're a great slugger, you're probably never going to be more than a competent fielder or base runner. If you're going to be a master of contact hits that get the ball in play and advance runners, you're probably not going to be knocking the cover off the ball. Perhaps more pointedly, these skills are developed by what you do day to day. You don't play a few games, accrue enough points to boost your attributes, and then get back to the playing field as a more capable player. Rather, it is how well you play in each situation that determines whether you made gains or started to atrophy. In MLB The Show 18, you are, more than ever, what you do, and yet you can only do so much. Within the artifice of the game's rules and meticulously analyzed metrics, outcomes are built and shaped by countless interactions and decisions that add up to inspiring victories, crushing defeats, or dismal collapses. We want to win, but we choose to train, to plan, and to practice. It's a lesson that sports are meant to teach, which is why children are encouraged to play them. It's a logic that players, coaches, and GMs internalize and study. It's why a personal responsibility nag like George Will finds in baseball an analogy for his life's philosophy. Remember that the best hitter in baseball this year will fail 65% of the time. So the only way to win consistently is by doing the little things, obeying the little rules of baseball. But the lie that Will chooses to tell with that analogy is a revealing one. Nothing that he describes in that long-ago commencement address will help anyone win consistently. The most it can do is help them become a slightly more effective hitter, but the history books are full of great hitters for whom the wins came too rarely, who walked off the field with impressive batting averages and on-base percentages, but no pennants and no rings. For all that, you need help. 
You need teammates, an organization, an infrastructure, resources for all of the above, and even then, you may still need some luck. In my story, this great MLB 18 battle that I'll remember for years, I tried everything I could to get Lorenzo Cain, and in the end I didn't. Not really. The batter didn't reach first, and that's recorded as a victory for the pitcher, but in the end it was Javier Baez who saved my ass. I didn't even have time to react before the AI-controlled second baseman got ahead of Kane's hit and got it under control off a tricky bounce. The misty conservatism of Will imagines both baseball and life as games of individual virtues, nurtured and eventually rewarded. Don't worry about things outside your control. Don't even complain about them. And somehow, when you're in the clutch, things will work out. It's little wonder, then, that Will has found himself so dismayed by where his own political team has taken him, and how incapable it's become of rising to even the simplest of ethical challenges. Sports are an escape only for those who refuse to think beyond them, who find in them a better, different world from our own. I think that's why so many people look at athletes and wonder if they know how lucky they are, if they feel the gratitude that they should for the fact that they are allowed to play a game that leaves most of us behind in those long-ago childhoods that they remember as far more carefree and far more oblivious than they really are. Don't tell me about the world, says the little boy at the start of MLB The Show 18, quoting Pete Hamill. Not today. It's springtime, and they're knocking baseballs around fields, and the kids are trying to hit the curveball. On this week's opening day in the spring, a group of black students from Marjorie Stoneman Douglas, survivors of the school shooting there, held a press conference explaining their reservations about deploying police to protect schools attended by children of color. Kai Korber said, It's bad enough we have to return with clear backpacks. Should we also return with our hands up? The Cubs beat the Marlins 8-4. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. So, Rob, I'm curious what your background is with sports as a fan. Like, Have you always followed baseball and sports in general, or is this, this kind of a, a new thing to your life? So I've always been into sports, but like it's one of those things where the older I get, the more I'm just getting into sports. Uh, and I don't know what's behind that. I think mean, part of it is once I left the Midwest and was away from my family and a lot of the family rituals we had that centered on sports, uh, suddenly I started to like really feel this like need to mm. watch more sports. And like partly it was to have something that wasn't just family news to talk about with my family. Sure. But there was also this sort of... um you know, yearning, right, for, uh, you know, just sort of the stability and familiarity uh, and, and drama that sports of their best can provide. Um, baseball is the latest addition to sort of my, my roster of sports I follow, and uh, <laughs> it was the hardest one to get into. Why was it so hard? Because baseball, to the uninitiated, is really fucking boring. Yeah. Uh, it's cause it is, it's just such an impossible, like, first of all, during the regular season, the games matter, but actually the games fit into a 162 game season. And really right. it's the arc of that season right. that is the real competition. And, right? and that's tough. And it's hard to find the drama sometimes if you are uninitiated, like you said, because so much baseball has really deep benches, um, especially when it comes mm -hmm. to matchups, right? When you think about basketball or football, you can say, oh, how is this defensive player going to match up against this offensive player? Or how is the, how are these two quarterbacks going to have a – they're both very strong. It's going to be a shootout, right? Who can score faster? Um, uh, or, you know, it's going to be two great, you know, uh, 
uh, uh, kind of franchise players, right? LeBron versus Steph, right? And even though the two of them might not be matched up necessarily one on one, there is a certain feeling of like these it's these two captains who are leading their teams against each other. But even when you look at something like the the duel that's at the center of your piece, right? Um, one of the things you say after you, you write about this pitching duel, this duel between a, a pitcher and a batter that goes for 15, 16, 17 uh, uh, throws or so, right, pitches, um, you kind of come down and say, like, it didn't matter in the end, right? Like, it was like a, a, a ground ball, like, uh, a throw out at, at first, right? Is that what ended up happening? Yeah. Um, and even then, you end up losing the game. But that doesn't really matter because it's one game in the in the season. And even if there had been some history between the pitcher and the the batter or something. There are so many pitchers who could be up throwing the ball at any given for any given team because pitchers rotate. It's hard to get into baseball and find the drama in a way that basketball or football uh, or even hockey, you know, it's 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 a little more surface level. It's a little more it's a little more easy to to find those plot lines. Um so how did you get into baseball? Like what was the thing that got you on board finally or, or or was it just a lot of hard effort and reading reading the reports every day uh so it's a few things uh i moved to boston right. and as part of that same like missing home missing sports the other thing about living in boston is that um you just the easiest way to just like smooth over any variety of social situations uh. is to have some passing familiarity with the boston red sox sure uh, and this is like this is not a joke either. This is not like oh, you know Boston. No, right. this is a real thing. Like you can basically strike up a conversation and like pass the time with any sort of uh, you know cab driver, doctor, uh, right. you know anyone basically anyone you meet on the street uh, about the Red Sox. And all you don't need to know a lot. You just need to know a little bit about like how things have been going lately, right? Who's hot? Who's not? Right. Uh, and so that started to change things a little bit, and then I started um, I started hanging out a lot more with uh, game designer Rob Davio. Okay. And watching baseball with somebody who knows the sport and follows it really well is really delightful because suddenly you're seeing the game that was there the entire time, but you just didn't like it was invisible to you. Mm -hmm. uh, when you have someone there to explain, like, okay, here's how pitching rotations work. Here are the calculations. Uh, that people are making about the interaction between uh, the, that deep bench of pitchers and hitters uh, and then the arc of the season, right? Like, is it worth trying to kill a pitcher to get somebody out <laughs> right. uh, in this situation? And then, you know, the Cubs made their uh, their championship run. I was out in L.A. with one of my best friends from Chicago, uh, my, my old editor-in-chief, actually, from my high school newspaper. And uh, <laughs> he's a sports fanatic, and... We caught two of those games, two of those playoff games at Dodger Stadium, and uh, I was kind of lost to the sport. Right. So one of the things that you get at here, and, and that you kind of just now got at too, is that is that running underneath the this sort of everyday part of the reason that sports work as this sort of um, almost mesh that that can be used to hold together a community or bring together people who otherwise would not have anything in the world to talk about um, is that. In doing that, there is kind of a political undercurrent, right? You kind of say, all right, this is neutral ground. All right, this this is a, a space where, you know, obviously there are politics here, but we can just talk about the box score. Um, and what I love about this piece is that you kind of take the effort to say, no, I'm not satisfied talking about the box score. I mean, I don't think you're dragging MLB The Show 18 here in any real way. I don't think that's what that this is. Um, but I do think what you're doing is saying that, like, as a consumer of sports, uh, you're recognizing that the players and the stadiums and the, the, you know, the audience exists in a world in which um, sports factor into the rest of their lives, personal, political, emotional, everything. Um, and that this is not necessarily a bad thing unless we choose to pretend that that relationship doesn't exist. And instead that we have to interrogate that. Is that a fair reading? I think it is. Uh, and, uh, you know, something I'll admit with this article, uh, and I'm sure you've run into this sometimes too. Um, if you're good with, with with words, with rhetoric, it can sometimes, you, you sort of have to really fight sometimes to get past your own bullshit mm -hmm. and see what you're saying. Like, if there is, 
one like this is an article I think I will always be slightly dissatisfied by because sure. I always think there's going to be there was a way to tie it a little more clearly a little more cleanly to the politics of the moment right, right. to to find a, a tighter connection between the experiences I had with with MLB and politics or maybe that you know this voice in the back of my head exists maybe the entire thing is kind of a force maybe the entire <laughs> thing is kind of a reach Right. Uh, but this was a question that I literally did not like. I didn't know if I'd stuck this at all until I hit publish, right? And people, right. it started resonating with people. But you know, there there is you always sort of have to check yourself if you're good at stylistic flourishes mm-hmm. that can make it a little too easy and create a little too strong a temptation to slide something that sounds good and feels like it has meaning uh, past a reader who might not interrogate it. Well, the the irony there is, in a sense, one of the things your piece is doing is recognizing baseball as that exact thing, right? Mm -hmm. Like, this is the the George Will problem, right? You look at George Will's um, kind of baseball analogies, the notion of, of baseball as this sport about hard work and effort and pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and personal responsibility and and rules and regulations and uniforms and all of this stuff that's in the background of baseball right baseball is not basketball basketball has become the a, a very black sport but also a very cutting edge cultural sport a sport about finding the edges of rules and pushing on them. It's a sport where coaches, uh, great coaches, step forward and say things that are political now, right? Um, it's not even football, where, where the ground is under under hot con- uh, contestation between those players who see, who see the field as a place for speech and those who see it as a place for producing content to be to be consumed. Um, and the kind of irony here is that it seems as if Will, George Will has kind of, and, and many other conservative commentators who love baseball for the, these reasons, have been taken in by the flourishes of their own rhetoric, but also of almost of, of the, the cleanness of baseball's rules without necessarily digging into the, the meat itself, which, you know, under your analysis is actually much less, you know, cut and dry about personal responsibility than maybe even some other sports are. You know, this is a game in which uh, you, you kind of say, like, you have to count on, you have to count on your bench. You have to count on somebody else, you know, on the diamond who's going to make a play for you. You know, the, your pitcher didn't win that duel in the end. Well, and, and one of the other things in, in baseball is that, uh, you'll hear people talking about when people are due for some regression, right? <laughs> and what they're meaning, what they, what they, what they mean is, th- this player is due to regress to the mean, to to his own uh, mean of performance. And you will have batters get hot, and you will right. have them suddenly, like for a long streak, batting significantly above their own historical uh, batting average. Uh, on base percentage, uh, you'll they'll even be batting above sometimes what seems like it is actually physically possible in baseball, right? Like the best hitters do not like barely like can barely sustain performances above three hundred. It's really hard, right? Um, and so when you have those streaks, they're sort of gifts from heaven, right? Because like they are not going to last. Like you know the regression is coming. Eventually, those stats are going to even out, almost certainly. But did you get lucky with when somebody got hot? You right. know what I mean? Like right. that is a huge variable. And baseball, especially with sort of the uh, statistical analysis revolution, the sabermetrics revolution that uh, happened in, in baseball and increasingly happening in, happening in basketball too, uh, which is an interesting dimension in all of this. But it creates this um, illusion of we can solve the sport in some right. way. Uh, and in some ways we can get closer to that. We can, we can make more ever more optimal decisions than ever before, but there's still this element of, you know, an average can conceal a lot of peaks and valleys. Right. And those peaks can be, can arrive at the exact wrong time or the exact right time. And a championship can hinge on that. Right. Quickly. um, Maybe not that quickly, actually. Uh, I suspect a lot of our audience, um, might hear the word sabermetrics and be like, okay, the word metrics is in there. I get what that means. I guess it means data-driven. You said something about data. Um, can you actually speak a little bit about what we mean when we say sabermetrics? And, and especially with 
result to or, or with reference to the notion of solving these sports in some way. Um, I think especially as, as game players, we understand that part, I think, pretty intrinsically or, or not intrinsically, but but uh, from our own experience of solving games, even solving sports games, right? I think, I think most people have some experience of playing, you know, whether that thing is NFL Blitz and figuring out that everyone you know doesn't know how to counter the run and so you can just run running plays on them in what is mostly a passing game and pretty consistently win, or if that's Blitz Ball in Final Fantasy X, right, and like figuring out what the right um, what the right uh, uh, you know settings are for your for your players to just mop up the floor there. Like games, game players learn how to game systems really well, and sports have traditionally been a little too analog for that. But things like sabermetrics have have tried to to address that. So I'm curious if you can kind of give us a brief introduction to what you mean by that and, and what data driven kind of sports management looks like. Um, and and kind of what the repercussions of quote unquote solving these these games have been. So I mean, this is a case where like Moneyball is a really useful film to yeah. look at, right? Or or better yet, like a book to read. And it, and it has its <laughs> flaws. It is simplifying a complicated story. But there's this memorable scene in the in the movie where um, the old talent scouts are trying to describe like the the, the players that they've seen, uh, prospects that they want to bring up. And they're in the room with the new data-driven guy, the new, uh-huh. the new analytics guy. And all the old scouts are just these, you know, old dudes who are talking about, like, really intangible things, right? Like, oh, you know, that kid gets, gets a great, uh, you know, jump, jump on, off the base. Uh, oh, he's got, he's got a great eye for pitches. But it's all this wishy-washy, hand-wavy language. Right. Right. And that's traditionally how baseball operated, and that's how a lot of us are taught baseball, right? You look at fundamentals, uh, you know, here's how you hold a bat, here's what a good swing looks like versus a bad right. one. And that was, for ages, kind of how players were assessed. And you sort of looked at those basic building blocks, and then you sort of imagined how they'd work in your system, and then you hoped for the best. Now, we can basically measure and analyze every single thing that happens on a baseball diamond. Uh, and a perfect example of this, and this is uh, when I was out in L.A., a friend of mine sort of illustrated it to me. We were up in the nosebleeds of, of Dodger Stadium. And he was like, look at the, de- look at the formation. Uh, look at the positioning on this, on this Cubs defense. And I looked down at the field, and it doesn't look anything at all like where the players are supposed to be. Because huh. if you play Little League, you know where all the positions are. Yeah. Left field, yeah. middle, left field. And maybe you play in if it's a weak hitter and back if it's a strong hitter. But like, that was mm-hmm. kind of the extent of it. That's how we all learned the game. There were these shifts taking place in the field where suddenly the entire like defense would rotate and bend like a reed, uh, to, like to the point where like maybe right field is completely empty. There's nobody there, huh. uh, and the answer is because with this pitching matchup and against this batter, they have like the odds are very good that the ball is going to be put in play in these positions off to, you know, center left field. That's right. that's the hot spot. That's where it's mo- most likely to come down. In the past, we didn't know that, and you just hoped that an athletic center fielder or a, an athletic shortstop would be able to run that down. Right. Now, you just move everyone around, and you, tr- you trust the stats. Because even if that ball goes in the right field, yeah, you're, you're in trouble. But chances are it's not, because we right. know this hitter, we know this matchup. That's wild, right? And, and th- I think that that... What has the response kind of been from the from a sports audience around that stuff? Like, is it even noticed from, uh, I'd say, like, more than a casual fan, more than, like, you know, have at them socks, but less than someone who's going to 20 games a year and who's following box scores every t- every day? You know what I mean? So I think it took a little while for, f- like, the casual fandom to catch up. But if you turn on a modern baseball broadcast... Yeah, they bring up the shift formation like on a graphic now. Like they show gotcha. you exactly where all those guys are standing. That graphic didn't exist ten years ago. Ten years right. ago, you just showed the lineup and who was playing where on the field. Now, with each batter, they bring up a quick like, "Okay, here's the shift," and right. you can tell at a glance where everyone's positioned. What's that? I mean, like for for me, it's funny to hear that stuff because so much of the the kind of themes of baseball as a cultural pastime are about the not the rough edges but a a sort of um organic vision of america you know as baseball or as 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 american as apple pie and baseball um is kind of like 
you're gesturing at a cloudy shape. You're not saying as American as, you know, a a family that has 2.5 kids, right? Yeah. You're saying, oh, baseball. You know, you know, baseball. And so much of what political commentators and sports, you know, sports and, uh, analysts and, and sports writers, sports columnists especially, when they do write about their love of baseball, there is something ineffable about it. There is something about the the possibility space about the the broadness of play the arc of a bat there's a poetry it's more it's not mathematical um and yet like all sports winning is the thing right um you point to those historic victories you point to the cubs winning uh and go oh my god wow we we finally did it no one cared about the arc of the bat. Like now, maybe in retrospect, you'll hear the arc of the bat story. You know, you'll, you'll yeah. hear the, the, the amazing pitch. What matters is the win. And I'm curious if you think there is a conflict between those two things. The method of winning has such little poetry. And the, or maybe I'm wrong. Maybe the method of winning does have a poetry, a poetry of its own that is harder for me to see because I'm, I'm at best a casual fan. I actually, for me, I think the poetry does become clearer to say. Uh, and I think like MLB the show is, is good at bringing this out too. You start to realize that players are much more situational than mm. you've, you've sort of been taught, right? Like somebody takes, goes, goes to bat against a certain pitcher in a certain situation. And actually you do know now what the most likely outcomes of this encounter are. Right. And in some ways that makes it all the more suspenseful because you know, if this pitcher like, if this pitcher pitches to this batter, right, it's like fifty-fifty, like strikeout, or it's going to be a real bad, like you right. know, triple or a home run, and that's and so like, is that a risk worth running for this pitcher? And so you start watching those duels. But I think you more the more interesting part is there are so many players now who have been given careers because they are so situationally useful that you can have. Like there is now a place for a really limited pitcher uh, who is just for whatever reason, magnificent batting against left-handed power hitters uh, in clutch situations. That guy can have a job now. Like, right. and right. like you will, you will have those moments where like, you know, the manager gets on the phone to the, the bullpen and you see that guy come out and you're like, Oh, it's on. Like we're putting, like, this is it. We're, we're putting everything on the line. We're going to, we're going to take this guy out. Uh, and that's really exciting in a way that I think before right. baseball just could sometimes feel like it was just sort of happening. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. This is kind of the thing that, that we kind of started at, right? That like, once you know the language of baseball, once you, once you can follow these micro stories, suddenly there is the possibility for drama injected into every at bat um, versus the sort of like only that really broad kind of wide vista of the field, right? Suddenly you're getting all sorts of different, like imagining baseball as a painting. Everything previously was just a sort of Rockwell-esque, you know, yeah. uh, day out at the ball game. And now you get these very high intensity, almost like, um, you know, abstract paintings. You get you get everything from the the you know two people locking eyes to the the most um, you know the strangest geometric uh, uh, you know uh, pieces. Right, like yeah. here is a here is a piece that's just about the beauty of this this geometrical formation, um, or or about not the specific arc of the bat, but about the way in which if you arc a bat seventeen times the same way, eventually you find a line through it. You know. Um, it's funny because I, I hear you talk about it and about how sports relate to your your like leaving home, missing the Midwest, right? And it re actually reminds me most of all about a, another game you wrote about that's a sports game, uh, Pyre. Mm -hmm. um, you wrote in, in your – I mean, it wasn't called a review at the time, um, <laughs> but in retrospect, we should probably go back and add the word review to this. Um, you say, Pyre's insight is that the boundary between sport and religion has always been a porous one, and these moments take on a hallowed quality pr uh, practically the moment they occur. It just makes this metaphorical truth into the literal reality of its universe. If your team wins enough games, you're released from your hellish existence of repetition and failure. But if your team doesn't win at all, and you're left hoping once again for next season, then you're left with a lot of questions about, uh, about meaning. When so much of yourself is invested in something so arbitrarily, 
What did all those games over all those years really signify? If an arbitrary game played by arbitrary rules becomes synonymous with the false promise of release and redemption, is it fulfilling a need or displacing one? So I'm curious to turn that around on you now. If an arbitrary game is played by arbitrary rules uh, and it becomes synonymous with the false promise of release and redemption, if we're putting so much of ourselves in sports, if we're looking so hard for our team to win, and I say that as someone who, you know, was in tears when the Eagles won this year, are we fulfilling a need by that or are we displacing one? And I think the answer is both. Hmm. And I think this is the... I mean, this is kind of the shitty aspect of all of this is on the <laughs> one hand, yeah, there are real things we can do in the material realm that will give us like that we have some agency over that can have some real meaning and impact in the world and that we can invest ourselves in, yeah, uh, that will actually accomplish things that matter to us and matter to others in a way that we can affect, right. On the other hand, we need and escape from that reality as well. We need, you know what I mean? We need a place where like Mm -hmm. something I try to bring out in this piece is what's nice about sports is that they're fundamentally safe in terms of like, in terms of that investment, right? Like even if like, yes, you you actually unpack that a little bit. What do you mean by safe? Yeah. Right. So like, I will never get over the trauma of watching the Bears just stink off the <laughs> joint at the Super Bowl they played in, like, what, 2006? Like, yeah. that memory, like, haunts me in some ways, right? But what an amazing memory to be haunted by, right? Like, it was an amazing right. season. Comparatively. Yeah, a lot of fun up to that point. Right. And, right. like, yeah, and my family's there up in the kitchen after the game being like, could you fucking believe those guys? That fucking sucked. And I remember that. It's a, it's actually a fun memory, even though that game upsets me and I hate thinking about it. And I right. really hate thinking about the NFC conference game they lost to the Packers two years later. Uh, <laughs> even though these things bother the shit out of me. Everyone was fine at the end of those days. You know what I mean? Right. Like it, it's... Like it was a place to experience like deep heartbreak, heartbreak, or in the case of like when the Blackhawks, uh, you know, won their Stanley Cups, just, just like overwhelming joy. Mm-hmm. But I didn't have to. They they weren't th- those those experiences didn't really have like any existential meaning for me or any of my loved ones. It was a right. place to feel. You know, the the agony and the ecstasy that is often associated with, like, great life events or war. Uh, But instead, I got to do it sort of cocooned in the embrace of, like, friends and family. And in the end, I was fine either way. Right. Uh, It's ironic. Or not ironic. It's funny because, for me, it was such a loss that actually made me back off of baseball. Um, As a kid, until I was eight... Uh, I was a huge baseball fan, and I had good reason to be. I loved the Philadelphia Phillies, right? Mm-hmm. And that is the Lenny Dykstra era, the Kurt Schilling era, the the um, uh, John Cruck era Phillies. You know, nothing but people who had cool names <laughs> and uh, were had like great personalities. Um, Darren Dalton, right? Like it was a it was a fun team to to watch. Um, they were very Philadelphia team. Do you know what I mean? Like little, they all look little rough and ragged, little, very rough around the edges. But like rough around the edges, the way Bruce Springsteen is rough around yep. the edges. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, big like, heart, bluff fellas. Yes, yeah. exactly. And uh, I was there when they won the National League Championship game. I was in Veteran Stadium, and Jesus. like. Yeah, they beat the Braves, the Braves who were, I mean, that's that's an era of the Braves, oh, the, Braves the Atlanta Braves, who were incredible. They'd won, whatever, 100 games or whatever. I remember, it, you know. I just, and now I would hate it for different reasons, but I remember just hating that fucking tomahawk chop, like, oh, that, yeah. that cheer yeah, yes. just yes. enraged I, me. <laughs> right, exactly. Different reason to hate it now, uh, because I know better. And, you know, I think even then I was like, hmm, this seems a little... This is a little suspect, huh? Um, but but at the time, I just hated it because also I hated it because one of my 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 uh, cousins was a big Braves fan. Oh, but was um, he really, or was he just a bandwagon? Of, like, what do you think? Garbage? Actually, you know, it wasn't even my. It was like my cousin. It was so it was my stepdad's cousin. Uh, and his son were big Braves fans. They had the fucking Atlanta uh, Braves tomahawk on their house mm-hmm. on a major like like out on their like a like a bar sign. Do you know what I mean? Not like just facing like facing the street. Not no, not just facing the street, Rob. Like, like, 
uh, like made of glass and metal, like attached to their house, overhanging their front porch. Oh my god! The way you would see it that way if you were driving left or right, that if you're driving down this major thoroughfare, you would see it, and it was just like such egoism, right? It was like also the era of the cowboys being like that. You know what I mean? Oh, so yeah. it was, it was, it was that style of me just being like, ugh, fuck off. Um, and, uh, we won and it was incredible. And then we just kind of got washed in, in the, the world series, um, by the, the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, and it was, you know, it was, it was a six game series or whatever, but like, I remember that final, I remember watching that final, uh, game and just crying and just like utterly having removed from me the ability to have that degree of investment. And so, like, I was very happy when the Eagles won. Um, but that was definitely, and I'd rooted for the Eagles all my life. And those are like, my, that's my favorite, fo- my favorite sports team is the Philadelphia Eagles, right? Like, um, because I love football and I played football as a kid and like all that. And so that, that stuck with me. But even through other great years in sports and teams I was rooting for, I never had the investment that I had for the 93 Phillies. Um, and, for me, I think the thing that I learned was that I was displacing to some degree. Um, was that it was I had put so much on the back of things I could never control that I would never let myself do that again. Uh, and it's why I've always had this like arms reach distance from sports since then. Still allowing myself, you know, the tears when they're appropriate. Still, still, you know, have my my pet things but even then i end up being the person who's like well it was a good game well and i think that's i mean that that is a critical thing uh because one of the things i was was trying to get at with this piece is that there's an expectation that this the space the playing field is in some way sacred is in some way like a hallowed American space that can somehow be free as if, as if any American right. space can be free of politics, but like <laughs> that this is a place where we're here to be reverent of the game. And that therefore part of that reverence is to exclude worldly matters from, from the place of worship. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's always been kind of, untenable and preposterous but like (laughs) especially in this era like literally like the thing that sort of made this piece work is that um and i wasn't expecting this but on opening day i turn on the cubs and they're playing the marlins and like probably a third of that game they're talking about the parkland uh (sighs) tragedy right and this was a thing that was like incredibly real and present for those announcers, incredibly real and present for uh, a lot of those players. Yeah. And I think we're living in an era where like, like it was like, you can never actually divide uh, the, the, the playing space from the larger world. I mean, if you, you know, <laughs> right. Jack, no Jackie Robinson's memoir no... does not end right. on an uplifting like, <laughs> note about, about no. America. Uh, Bill, you know, Bill Russell doesn't have a lot of great things to say about the experience, uh, you know, playing in, uh, playing in Boston. Um, mm-hmm. That's always kind of been an aspect that like, there's always sort of been a lie we tell ourselves, but increasingly in this era, uh, where we're, we're so much more interconnected and because like it feels like the pace and the scale and the immediacy of our political confrontations uh, are are getting so much uh, higher intensity that for more and more of the people inhabiting this formerly neutral space, that neutrality is a mask that is increasingly hard to put on. And I think that's a healthy recognition and it's actually the people who push back against that that I think you really need to be suspicious of, right? Because an appeal for a politicism is always deeply political. It is always mm-hmm. about that, like, there is no more uh, ringing defense of the status quo than, and like, than agitating that we not talk about it, right? Right, and and I think that has been like for my for my uh, sake as someone who has seen the response to your piece, and and been happy that it's resonated with so many people, but been frustrated by something else, which is like a lot of the response has been like 
why is the this review of MLB The Show 18, which is not, it's not even marked as a review as far as I recall. No, I don't think we did. No. Um, it, why is it about how MLB The Show isn't political enough, which is like so not the point, um, and instead is, or or if it is, the argument is, baseball itself is already more political and and we had the, the nick capizzoli piece from a while mm-hmm. ago that is similarly uh about this that like the limits of our sports simulations the limits of our of our games about these games um is almost entirely focused on this part of of their existence as cultural artifacts as cultural processes that are about them engaging with the political world, engaging with the broader cultural world. Um, and it's one of those things I'd love to see video games dig into. Uh, e- even if those games did so with the sorts of... the same sorts of remove that even sports broadcasters do. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Sports broadcasters are not, in a, are not the people who are going to weigh in on the Parkland shootings in terms of what the country needs to do. But there is an active, there is a, an act of recognition when the political world does something, or when the when when news is is the way it is, or you know there is a sort of like dialogue back and forth. Um, part of what makes watching Sports Center fun is that they are making memes and jokes and are referencing things from the rest of pop culture. The world exists outside of sports and is often sports is both a lens through which we see the rest of the world and also we bring that lens to bear. Um, and you know, I think when, when games have really great, when video games have really great commentators, there is a little bit of that in the written commentary that comes, that brings stuff to life. Um, and I like to see more sports games lean in that direction. Yeah. We'll see, you know, these, these games often have story modes. There's room, you know? So, all right, Rob, thank you so much for joining me for what has again become an extended conversation. We, you know, we didn't break an hour, so... We didn't uh, this we're, time. We're thank God well. on that. <laughs> uh, as a reminder for people listening to this on Wednesday, um, we are not going to have a Friday episode because we will be at uh, PAX. And if you're going to be at PAX East, make sure to come through to our panel, 2.30, Bumblebee Theater, on Saturday. Saturday, 2.30, Bumblebee Theater, Waypoint Radio. Come check us out. Say hi. Bring bring some questions, because we're going to do a question bucket segment, and I hope, I think, we'll have a real bucket, too. The most meta joke would be to fill that bucket with questions, yeah. and then set it and aside just, in the in Yeah, we'll get to these next time. Yeah, yeah totally. Um, all right, Rob, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, at Rob Zachney on Twitter. All right, follow me at Austin underscore Walker. And as always, thanks to Bowen for letting us use his track Miss You off the EP Pale Machine. Find out more about that, waypoint.zone slash B-O-E-N. Until next time, peace. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.